Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down this hill. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ultimate OE. As most of you would know, Curran and I run a business called Ultimate OE. And we specialise in sending young Kiwis and Aussies to Canada and Scotland to work in the hunting industry. Applications for next hunting season, so 2020, both in Canada and Scotland, are now open. As hunters, we're not often happy with inauthentic experiences. We're always looking for something adventurous, more exciting and more unique. Same goes for overseas experiences. We deliver once-in-a-lifetime opportunities working for the best outfitters in Canada and the best hunting estates in Scotland. Our train-before-you-go setup means that we can secure all the best jobs with the best employers, with the best people in the best spots, all ahead of time because they know you're going to turn up with the knowledge and skills to hit the ground running when you get there. If you're interested in an OE in Canada or Scotland next year based around hunting in the mountains, it doesn't get much better in my opinion. If you think you might be interested or just want to learn a little bit more about what we do, feel free to get in touch. You can get us on email at ultimateoemail at gmail.com. You can flick us a PM on Facebook or Instagram, either through the Educated Hunter or Ultimate OE pages. Either will work, whatever blows your hair back. Enjoy the show. This evening I sit down with Joseph Peter. Joseph has been on the podcast before. He is the man behind Hard Yards Hunting. Uh, this podcast isn't so much about Joseph, his past, and what it is he does. It is, it is essentially a debrief on what was Tarmageddon, so the, the planned cull on Tar. Uh, and we, we discuss the impact as a professional hunter and a recreational hunter. And importantly, what we as New Zealanders need to at very least consider and or act on going forward. Uh, so it's it's a very insightful podcast and it highlights a few, I guess, learning curves we need to go through as hunters. But um, equally that, <clears throat> I guess, you know, we are big contributors to management and to any species within New Zealand. So we, we need to take that on board. And and do the best, the best we can as recreational hunters. So uh, enjoy the podcast. Quarters over well, your shoulder. We did. Carry them. Yeah, we did. It's a waste of time putting yeah. in the pack. <clears throat> yeah, no, we did. Big fellow like you, better just whip guts out and throw uh, them on your shoulders. Yeah, big fellow like me with a back from doing stuff like that. <laughs> Got a whole lifetime of those dumb stories. If I could take it back now, I would have caught everything. Yeah, but it looked good in the pick hunting albums. <laughs> All right. Okay, so I'm back. Well, actually, I'm not back at Joseph's house. This is a it's completely a new, house. new house. So we're in Joseph's new house, um, just filling in an evening in Twizel, and uh, basically just going to catch up as the listeners from the that would have listened to the previous podcast with Joseph will be well aware that his outfitting business, Hard Yards Hunting, specialises in legitimate free range tar hunts, backpack, authentic style genuine hunts <clears throat> when we last sort of started discussing i guess the tarmageddon and, and the big tar cull event was at fairly early stages and really we're just going to catch up and have a discussion about what it is he saw firsthand and, and any impact he had so how was the 2019 mountain season that was it was good it was good for us um we did about the same number of tar as we normally do. The last couple of years, we're doing sort of 12 to 15 tar hunts um, between me and Tim, and everything sort of ticks along pretty well. It wasn't it wasn't a bad season by any means in terms of tar. Um, we didn't. I think our biggest bull was Tim got one. It was maybe 13 and. Six eights or thirteen seven eights on the long side. We didn't quite crack the fourteen, which the last couple of years we have got a couple of bulls around fourteen. Um, that's a bit more luck than anything else. <laughs> like you've, I don't know, to get a fourteen inch bulls, you've just got to be lucky. You can work hard and still not find them. Yeah, and I think also 
not that not that we're going to go down this route already, but I'm going already. Sometimes when we just go straight to the measurement, we actually miss what it is that makes the ball or any animal special. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I, when I hear when people say, "Oh, it's only a twelve-inch ball," and I'm like, "Yeah, but if it's a real heavy set-off bush tar yeah. that's broomed a little and worn to twelve, then that's a massive trophy." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, the difference between a you know a world record ball and an average one's only an inch or two. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's not a huge it's not a huge difference. So. I don't ever really focus on that much. It's a measurement we do at the end of the hunt, and I jot it down in my diary. But it's not the it's not the reason why we go after tar, and not the not the deciding factor on the bulls we shoot anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to bump into the I think it's the pending new record bull at the helipad. Had to have a look at that, which was pretty impressive. Um, so there's definitely definitely still big bulls out there, and I think most people would agree probably the last five years, five to ten years, have probably been the best tar hunting in the history mm. of New Zealand. Yeah. Well, I know um, so. I've referenced it before, but I, the tar I have on my wall, I shot, uh, when did I shoot that? 2001. Mm. And it was 12 and three quarters. And that was a yeah. big ball then, you know, <clears throat> like like 12 was quote unquote the benchmark of trophy and like he was exceptional well, you know and I like to me he still is exceptional but you know now 13s yep. and then 14s and now 15s and yep. yeah it's yep. really come on yep yeah and it's not you know when I started guiding like a 13 inch ball was like like holy shit kind of thing yep. like I'd get me tape measure out and I'm like oh fuck you know crack the 13 whereas you know there's still a big ball there the size of that ball hasn't changed, but once you've, I suppose I've done quite a few tar hunts now, and you see those bulls like that fairly regularly, they start to become a little bit normalised, and I mm-hmm. think that's something the the modern tar hunter is probably going to have to wrap their head around. That's probably going to change a little bit mm-hmm. going forward. Uh, looking at the next decade, we're probably going to see a bit of a change mm-hmm. in what is an average bull and how many bulls we're going to see on the hill and how many we're going to pass up to find those big bulls. Um, so that's probably something that's going to change. But at the moment, um, our season was, was good. Everyone got good bulls. Um, we had had a good run on chamois as well. Got a few 10-inch bucks, which is something that's been niggling at me for the last mm-hmm. few seasons. I've been trying to crack that 10 inches and it hasn't quite happened. Like a chamois are, are hard. Um, what am I doing? Rubbing me mic off. Yeah. Chamois are hard at the moment. Um, there's a lot of areas that have traditionally been good that have had a bit too much hunting pressure, a bit too much helicopter activity, and the chamois just aren't there. Um, and I think we need to be a bit more selective, maybe, mm-hmm. with the chamois we're shooting and, and try to give those does a chance to breed up yep. and give those young bucks a chance to grow. But it's easy to tell someone else what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, and uh, and it's easy. You know, you also lose. Well, you don't lose. I mean, I'm, and I'm definitely not putting words in your mouth. But once you've done quite a bit, it gets a little bit easier to say, "Hey, we shouldn't be doing that." But yeah, yeah. you try telling the 15 year old Joseph that. Yeah, you yeah. know. But what about, I guess, from you know, because your clients are typically international and so forth. Like, was there any negative stigma at the? At the selling hunt end, you know what I mean. Like, had it, had the concept of us culling tar, tar damaged the opportunity to sell tar hunts? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. To a point, there's definitely people that are asking questions and going, "What's going on?" And it's still can be quite confusing what what you read on the internet and what happens in the real world and what someone tells you at the pub and what actually happened are two different things. Very Kiwi though. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, it, it is reality that tar are getting controlled they always have been they've always been cold there's mm-hmm. there's no illusion about that um, but the herd has definitely taken a lot more pressure in the last sort of 12 to 18 months than what it traditionally is, has had um, so we did get I did get quite a few questions from people booking hunts um, and we kind of the way I do my hunts is I'm predominantly focused on the west coast and the main reason behind that is because those tar are not as affected by helicopter control. Mm-hmm. Because 
they've had so much helicopter control over there that they've learned how That's to. Smarter. Yeah, they've they've got the scrub to hide, and whereas a lot of the the eastern ranges are so exposed and so open, especially this country through here, you can see out the window. Mm. There's not much to hide behind. It's merino country. Yeah, it's yeah. merino country and a lot of areas like the Two Thumb Range and parts of the Rangitata, the Godley, the Macaulay. There's valleys like that that are very exposed. Um, they can be really good tar hunting, but if they get a bit too much helicopter activity, you can you can chew them out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're pretty strategic in the areas we hunt and try to spend enough time out in the hills that we know what's going on and have good relationships with the pilots and and know what we're looking for as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're hunting for old bulls. There only needs to be there only needs to be one bull. Mm-hmm. There only needs to be one in the whole valley. Mm-hmm. You've just got to know how to find him. So there doesn't need to be a huge number of tar. It certainly makes it easier when you see lots of tar, you can pick and choose. Well and I think one thing that numbers gives you, especially as a amateur and I don't mean that negatively to anybody but as an amateur hunter it gives you a better scale yeah like at least of size yeah you know yeah and as a guide it definitely makes a hunt um, easier and more exciting for a client it makes it easier to get up in the morning when you know you've seen something whereas mm-hmm. you go back to like a sheep hunt and you're <laughs> on day five and you haven't seen jack shit and yeah. you're like fuck what's the point yeah, <laughs> the point yeah. The tent today because we're not going to see anything yeah so it becomes it becomes a, a motivator uh, when you're seeing game every day. It makes it a lot easier to keep pushing for the big ones or the old ones or whatever you're looking for. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as of this season, you know, the majority of the culling that's happened was sort of postponed and delayed until late in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And there was that, I mean, I know there was, again, a lot of bar chat around they couldn't get ammunition and the people were holding them up. But, but then... They equally did put it off to after the recreational yep. hunters had their quote-unquote chance as well. Yep, and I suppose that is the value of the Tar Foundation and, and the work the GAC and the Tar Foundation did in mm-hmm. stalling Doc and making Doc stand back and recount their figures and, and change their attitude and change what they were going to do mm-hmm. instead of having a mass kind of annihilation through the previous spring that was going to happen and possibly lead into the hunting season, which would have caused a huge amount of issues if you were out there and mm. in the rut and uh, shooting animals at the same time, it would have just been a nightmare. Um, so most of the culling that was happened is, you can see it all online, it was later in the winter, which is the best time to do it anyway, um, to get animals in the snow. So it's only now in the springtime that people are going to, see that impact mm-hmm. um, and looking looking at the online figures and and the reality of what's been done because it's been done to a budget and it's been the maximal tar for the cheapest dollar they're always going to pick on the easiest yep. places first well as, as again and it's more barroom talk but the guys tended for the work so that always becomes a price competition yep. and then when you're successful you've then got to find the most efficient way for you to do it to ensure that your dollar's still in it. Like, that's yeah, that's yeah. Joe Blog business. Like yeah, it always goes down to the, the cheapest mm. cheapest option, uh, which, you know, in terms of a biodiversity or management goal, that's all us about face. Yep. You know, if we're trying to do this for biodiversity, it needs to be focused on biodiversity. It needs to be focused on the areas where the damage is the worst, not the areas of the easiest to access. Mm-hmm. And those... Those are normally at opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, so that's an issue that I don't think has been resolved and there needs to be better balance put put into that next time around. Uh-huh. So you, well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you as an outfitter that currently spends the majority of the time on your West Coast side, you're openly aware that the West Coast needs some management as well yeah, to better achieve an objective of biodiversity. In, in areas for sure, yep. yep. Yeah, there's a few, and I think all tar hunters would agree that every now and then you go into a little gut or a, a little creek or a little valley or some little spot, and it's normally a mongrel asshole yeah. of a place yeah. that no one goes, and you get into one of those spots and you're looking around and you go, shit, this isn't right. Like, it's yeah. just, 
it's too many. Yeah, it's too many animals, and there are areas like that. And we're in one of those spots this season um, with a hunter of mine, and we shot. We ended up shooting quite a lot of nannies, mm-hmm. a lot of meat out, which is good. You can do that later in the season because it's cold enough you can keep it all. And I think it's. I know if you if you've done a lot of hunting, it's easy to see those spots, mm-hmm. and it's easy to go right. We need to hook into it here and mm-hmm. and do a bit of a clean up. And then there's other areas you go, and you're like, man, there's not many animals here at all, and you need to be really selective. And it's not a it's not a one size fits all. It's not just no. this is this is what we're going to do across the board. It's really localized. The areas that have issues and. That's the problem with the way the Department of Conservation has approached it. It's been focused on figures. So, you know, we're going to shoot X figures amount Figures and finance. Yeah. We're going to shoot X amount of tar for this amount of dollars instead of going, these are the valleys that need to be looked at mm-hmm. and these are the creeks in those valleys that need to be looked mm-hmm. at. You well, know? I guess, but have, the, have, have is there any other than, um, and this is only your vision of events versus my vision of events, nothing formal <laughs> in this, but like, has there ever actually been any genuine acknowledgement from the Department of Conservation that the reason for this is for biodiversity? Yeah, the the underlying goal has been we've got to kill the tar to save the tussocks, Mm. um, more or less, in a really simplified version. Yeah, yeah. Which is fair enough, and that's the underlying goal of the tar control plan. That's the whole purpose of it, is to achieve a balance. Mm -hmm. We have to have a balance where our native plants are allowed to be at a natural sort of level but the problem with the recent monitoring is it's been a fly around the helicopter and count tar mm. you go there's too many tar instead of looking at the plants and the problem the impact on the, the the problem with looking at vegetation surveys or looking at on the ground stuff is you can't for sure say this is a problem with tar it might be chamois it mm-hmm. might be deer it could be hares Mm-hmm. A lot of this country is yeah. A lot of this country through here. There's millions of hares, and hares are really damaging. They're, they really hook into young trees, and and they ring bark a lot of plants, and they can be quite damaging. So that's something as well, and that is where the tar foundation, uh, where the the tar control plan, kind of fails, and the whole idea of figures. There needs to be X amount of tar. It, it's not that simple because there's other animals that live within the tar mm-hmm. habitat. And they all have an impact as well. So it need you need to look at the whole big picture and forget about figures and go, oh, we shot X amount. Numbers of off, sh- yeah. You know, it's well, it needs to be about what the land can hold as a yep. saturation point versus yep. a decision on what is the saturation point with, with you know from the top. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> especially, you know, the last few years we've had quite a lot of, especially around here, like good merino country that's been retired. Mm-hmm. And that's country that's modified pasture. It's had fertilizer put on it. It's had clovers over it. It's not, you know, wilderness. It's farmland. It's modified farmland, and it can. It's been holding high numbers of merinos for the last hundred years. Yeah. You know, you look, look at the tar control plan. Says ten thousand tar. That's, you know, it's heaps and heaps and heaps of farms that have ten thousand sheep. Ten thousand sheep's not very many. Yeah. You know, so the idea of focusing on those figures is. Is a bit pointless, uh, but it's easy. Mm. Doing vegetation surveys is difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, without diving into it, it depends on what the actual agenda is. Yeah. So we're now, I guess, you know, your your concentration now sits with next season, and again, the interest is still high on New Zealand hunting. You know. Yep. 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 Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've still got good bookings. For next year, and I don't think we're going to see, I don't think we're going to see any real issues um, until I think the next sort of five years are probably going to be good. Mm-hmm. But then after that, that's when we're going to start seeing problems. I think. What, could, what, could why is that? Problems. Just because well, juvenile bulls. Yeah. So all the, the control, yeah. all the control's been focused on nannies, which it, which it needs to be if you want to actually mm-hmm. affect the population. So our bull herd is more or less the same as it was. It hasn't really changed. But this spring, we're going to get a lot less bulls hitting the ground. There's a lot less kids going to be born. And those are our 10 years down the track. They're our trophy bulls. So you look at the average bull that we shoot is about 9, 10 years old. 
So it takes a decade for those bulls to, to appear. So they're being born this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a reduced number of those being born and our hunting pressure stays the same, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's got to be a, there's going to be a difference there somehow. So we either need to have more bulls born or reduce our harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, and reducing the harvest or changing the harvest um, to really focus on those old, those older tar. Yeah. And if you look at it, if you look at the herd as a whole, there's only going to be a certain percentage of bulls that are going to be ten years plus. So if you're only shooting those bulls, you can never over harvest the herd. Mm-hmm. Because there's only ever going to be that. What's well, how all the other international yeah. models work? And that is how your sheep, you look at the stone sheep or, yeah. or whatever in America, they shoot the same number of rams every mm-hmm. year, more or less. And the herd stays the same size, more or less. It has mm-hmm. small fluctuations with the winters and predators or whatever, but not major changes. No. No. And that's something that we need to we need to start thinking about. I don't think we don't need to have laws in place that say, Oh, you can't shoot it five-year-old bull or whatever because it's impossible to police and impossible mm. to regulate but it comes down to people understanding why why do you need to make that decision why does it matter um, and for a lot of guys that are out there you, you're just shooting yourself in the foot mm. that's the problem you're hurting mm-hmm. you're hurting your future self because yep. it's easy for us to go to dock and say oh there's no bloody tar on the hill and you know everyone minds and bitches about it instead of looking at your own choices you've made yep. and go well if I didn't shoot this two three year old bull now five years down the track he might be a 13 inch bull that yep. I can put on the wall if mm-hmm. that's what you want to do and I think that's something that people need to realise that our actions both the commercial and recreational hunters have just as much if not more impact than the Department of Conservation mm-hmm. so that's something that yeah, I, I, I lost I, track of I totally agree it's a it's a really difficult one because, like our culture lends itself to, you know, you put out that sort of factual advice. They're like, oh my god, I've got five years to get a good bull. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I better go and shoot him now. Yeah, yeah, I better go and shoot him now. And <clears throat> and the reality is, they're not all going to be in that small percentile up the top that are ten years plus. And and then then the other, I guess, you know, without without not this doesn't come from a, a science background, but with the decrease in females, will then the males potentially roam into newer areas and, you know, could the opportunity actually become quite high? Maybe in the, or, or, in the, or, you know, in the in, fringe country, yeah. I think. Um, some things you do notice, and this is things you'll notice on private blocks or public land or wherever where you've got a big difference in the female to male population is things like the rut. Mm-hmm. if you have an area where there's 100 hinds and you've got 100 stags or you change those figures around you've got 100 hives of 50 stags we've got 200 stags and 50 hinds they're going to go mental yeah, because yeah. they have to rut properly yeah. to get a chance and so we're probably going to see an enhanced rut in the next season mm-hmm. because there's going to be a lot less nannies and there's going to be the same number of bulls so they're going to be they're going to have to be pushing for it yeah. um, so the advantage of that if we all play our cards right, is we're going to have a smaller herd, so there's going to be more feed. We're going to have an enhanced rut, which means that the best bulls are going to breed. And you've got more feed, mm-hmm. which means the potential for there to be better... Exceptional bulls. Exceptional yeah. bulls is there, but, but how there do has you, to be a chance for here's them a, to grow. Here's a, here's a very big piece of string question. Like, how do you actually get New Zealand hunters and I get you know we can go down the whole rabbit hole of internationals that are coming over and doing their own hunts and all that but how do we get hunters to actually want to strive for that and and, and my first train of thought is we actually need to sit happily in unsuccessful hunts it's one thing New Zealanders don't do but then that goes kind of against the fact that we need to be going out there and still contributing to high uh, nanny cows or you know what I mean like it's it's a it's a big piece of string yeah but we, we can keep educating but it's it's a it's a really hard one yeah it, it is a hard one you can't go <laughs> you can't tell someone not to do you know it's the same with everything if you yeah. introduce a law or you tell a kid you go you can't eat the ice cream 
And they go, fuck, I'm going to have the ice cream. That's yeah, all yeah. they're going to want and to do. And more of it. So you can't tell people not to do something or you can't push on the kind of don't do this. We need to be saying this is what you need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, and especially at the moment, we've got a lot of problems with the Department of Conservation and Public Relations. They've mm-hmm. really got a big job on their hands yeah. um, across a lot of issues. And there's a huge amount of resentment and hatred towards the government about what the things that they're doing with animal management. And the same with Warro as well. Mm-hmm. There's a huge amount of resentment there. And the same with this tar control. And we need to realise that we are having just as much impact as they are. Like the same with Warro. You go, oh, they shot all these deer and I shoot all these stags and velvet. Recreational hunters shoot like five times as many mm-hmm. deer as Warro mm-hmm. does. Well, we, the reality <laughs> is we need as well. a version at least of Warro. We yep. need that. Otherwise, we just end up with the same ptarmigan in any other species at any other point. Yeah, and it's the same with our tar control, is we do need tar control. Ongoing control. Targeted into areas that recreational hunters can't mm-hmm. get into. And most of those areas are just shitholes. Yeah. Some of them you physically cannot get in there. Or if you can, you're not going to shoot 10 nannies and pack mm-hmm. them out of there. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just can't. It's just a logistical nightmare. Um, so we we need to accept that culling is always going to be a part of it, but we need to have more of a say over how, why, where, and when, mm-hmm. uh, which is the GAC and the Tar Foundation's job, is we've really got to keep working with Doc and trying to hold them accountable for the things that they've done yeah. wrong. But then I guess with that... Praise them on the things they've done wrong. Yeah, yeah, well. and... and- if we want to have that kind of stake in it in terms of the why, how, when, what, then perhaps we need to be socially acceptable to fund it, or in part. Yeah, you long know, like term. You can't have your cake and ask for somebody else to ice it type thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, long term. It's funny because a lot of people say, oh, I'd never pay for that. And you go, you're paying for it already. Mm-hmm. You've paid for these tarts. I've paid for it. Yep. It comes out of our tax money. Yep. We've all paid for it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's no different. Um, we're paying for it anyway. It's just about having a bit of control over what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So we need to realise that, yep, they are doing some things that we probably don't agree with, and we need to support the groups that are that are going to hold them accountable for that. Mm-hmm. That's the GAC and the TAR Foundation and the NZDA. And then we need to look at our own actions and go, well, are what we're doing the right thing? Are there things that we could do that would be slightly better? Are there things we should be doing? Are there things we shouldn't be doing? And, you know, it depends what you're trying to achieve. Everyone has different goals. You know, some people just want to go out there and have a good time and shoot whatever they see, mm-hmm. which is which is all right. Um, that's okay. But you don't need to shoot 20 or 30 animals and just leave them on the mm-hmm. hill. There's no... You know, there's some areas where that needs to happen, but unless you're in the hills regularly, you know, you might not know what those areas are. Yep. Um, well, and at different times of year, you yep. know what I mean? Like you head out there, like you say, at peak rut, and if certain bulls have pushed around certain mobs, and you, the first gate you poke your head into, there's 50 animals, and then you go, oh, this is an open book. Yeah. And then don't see anything for the rest of the trip, you know, like there needs to be accountable balance. Yeah. And I think some people that are maybe, I suppose, senior tar hunters or experienced tar hunters, like if if you've got that 14-inch bull sitting on the wall, you know... You don't need a 12-inch bull. No. What are you going to do with a 12-inch? You know, spend your time looking for the 15 or spend your time looking at nannies or spend your time helping your mate down the road who's starting from scratch because they're the guys that are really going to struggle with is this a big bull, is this a young bull, is this an mm-hmm. old bull? And we've all got to start from zero. Mm-hmm. And it's an, it's it's hard to learn. You know, yeah. tar are not easy to age and they're not easy to judge. And the only way to learn is by doing. You've got to be out there. And mm-hmm. The old way everyone learns is you just shoot all Ground the, bulls, shoot all the yeah. bulls you see and run a yeah. tape on them. No, I've, I've always been an advocate for... I would never knock anybody for shooting a small stag or a small tar... If that's the biggest they've shot, yeah. and I like, and I, I get under certain pressures that even that might not be the right idea. But 
I would never knock somebody for shooting a 10-inch ball tar if that is their first ball tar or whatever. That's where they've got to. But that's the last one they need to shoot at that. That's how I sort of see you know, like like have your own scale. And I get, you know, to sit here and say, well, you should, that's okay to shoot a 10-inch ball tar. There's some grey in that. But if it's your first one, then, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know. I, I, I know. I, I'm I've listening a, to myself a, saying I've that. I've got a tennis ball out there. Yeah, but I'm listening it's to myself saying <laughs> Yeah, but like, you know, like I, I, I don't want to knock new or young hunters no. in a negative respect for that. No, we don't want to be turning people away and saying you can't, you can't do this, or you yeah. shouldn't shoot yeah. that ball, you shouldn't. Shoot I think that's that really stag, important, or you shouldn't be doing this. You know, people need to be out there and getting amongst it. Mm-hmm. But it's the guys that. Are regularly hunting and have, yep. have ticked all the boxes yep. that are still just shooting animals because they other boxes. Yeah, yeah, ticking the other boxes, you yeah. know. And you know, I think it's important to to help other people out. And I think there's the big bull I saw on the on the west coast was kind of like the perfect example of that. Um, with his name's Alan Foot. I'm horrible mm-hmm. with names. Yep. I met at Halipad. I think I might have met him at the. Seeker show a few years ago. Yep. Anyway, he was there and they had a group of, of young kids that they'd taken in and they were, I don't know how old these guys were, maybe 13 to 15 or something. You know, they were just starting out and they'd shot their balls and they were having a great time and Alan hadn't shot a tar for, I think he said for 15 years. He'd just been helping people out and this was going to be his last tar hunt. And he goes, it's just the potential new world record ball. Mm. And that kind of just summed up the like perfect example mm-hmm. of what people should be doing. You're just mm-hmm. like, this guy has just done it the right way. He's done yep. everything perfectly, and he's been rewarded for yep. helping people out. And but that's doing that's everything I, I guess right. a little bit of, I guess where I was hoping to go. Like he's, I don't, and I don't know him personally, but he's obviously a guy that is quite happy to hunt and bank memories. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and it's a very different thing to be able to spend multiple days in any sort of environment and know that what actually came on the back of your backpack didn't dictate how successful or unsuccessful the hunt was. Yeah. And that's something our mindset needs to shift towards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I definitely, where I grew up, because we were mainly hunting farmland and especially areas with a lot of goats, if you went out hunting and you come back, how'd you get on? Oh, I shot 20 goats today. Mm-hmm. I shot 30 goes for that. Oh, that's awesome. The more you shot, that's yeah, the better. The better hunter you were. The better the <laughs> hunter was. I shot 100 goats last week. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and I think there's a lot more to hunting, especially, you know, especially tar hunting in the mountains. There's a lot more to it mm. than just going to shoot bulls or yep. shoot nannies and just watch them fall off cliffs or something. You know, it's just, yep. there's a lot more to hunting than that. Um, there's a lot more to any hunting than that. Yeah. It's a really funny thing. I was talking to um, somebody today, actually. I can't remember. Cam, it might have been. Like, when I was on this hunt in Canada and looking for sheep, and sheep hunt's always low number, slow, you know, like it just... Yeah, it's a low, it's, it's it's not a low, a, it's a low density yeah, grind. Yeah. It's always going to be. And so we find a sheep that is just a legal sheep, like... And I tell myself, well, there's no way I want to look at that sheep on my wall, like, because it's just a legal sheep. So we say no and walk away. And this is my hunt of a lifetime, species of a lifetime. You know, and I do this 10 day to hunt, and, I'm, and I am emotionally satisfied with my decision. Get back to New Zealand, tell my wife all about it, and she's a little bit confused as to why I just did my look, you know, like, she's like, you had a chance and you didn't, and talk her through it but then and I was still emotionally fine with it then I re- reiterate that story to 20 different Kiwis that I hunt with and now I'm starting to go did I make the right decision <laughs> like you know even that's knocked my personal beliefs down you know like it's just a Kiwi culture <laughs> yeah I think there's some things about our culture that we can improve on but there's other things that we sh- should leave the same I don't think it's oh, 100% yeah. we work in a really different world to the rest mm-hmm. of the hunting world. I think Australia has some species in some areas that are the same as here. Comparative, yeah. Um, but we've got a pretty hard task of taking something that's a pest on one hand and a trophy a or resource. A, a resource on the other hand and then it's a cultural asset and it's a mm. 
Where do we draw the line? What's the perfect formula? Um, that's a hard one. And there's guys out there that are just hunting for meat. And I know there's a, there's a few guys that are hunting tar for meat. There's not very many mm-hmm. that, you know, seriously, if you want to put meat in your freezer, tar hunting is... There's easier options. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate to break it to you, but it's not the, so most, what then, not and, the most efficient way to do and, it. Um, <clears throat> I know there'll be people that listen to this and go, oh, it's easy for Joseph to say because he makes money out of tar hunting. But what would be, from a guy that lives and breathes tar, and I, you know, and I, I don't say that with any judgment at all, like, what would you suggest Kiwi hunters should be doing over the next couple of three years or five years or even longer term, to be fair? Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to tell other people. It's easy to tell other people what to do, I suppose, but... I think people need to need to realise the situation like the, the tar culling that's happened. It's happened. Mm-hmm. It might have been shit. It might have been unfair. You might have seen things happen that shouldn't have happened. But it's happened. It's It's been and gone. Yeah. Um, it's history need, now. We need to look at what's happening next year and what's happening the year after that. And it's not over yet. It's this In terms of... Potential cows yep. or further cows. Yep. In yep. terms of what's happening next, um, there's still ongoing control work that's going to be done. Um, and there's still grey area stuff that there's been a number of reports on bulls being shot. Mm-hmm. And those, I got sent today, I got sent a message about um, Doc Culling Chamois. And that's something that's been this rumour that's been floating around for, for quite a while from a number of people going, oh, Doc's mm-hmm. Culling Chamois. Show us some evidence, yeah, yeah. you know. And for guys that are out there this spring, you're gonna see, especially a lot of the areas on the east coast, you're gonna see dead tar that have been shot. And look around, see what's see what's actually happened. Mm-hmm. Look at the online data; you can see all of the waypoints of where animals have been shot, so you know where they've been shot. If those don't line up with what you're seeing on the hill, you need to be taking some photos and taking some GPS coordinates. Which everyone can do on their phone, contacting the GAC, contacting the Tar Foundation, and making sure that that stuff gets put through to people that can seriously take it to dock, mm-hmm. instead of just having a whinge about it or yeah. creating some sort of rumor and go, oh, there was all these bulls got shot, and you go, where were they? And they go, oh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Because so, we don't, we don't need to be a pity demographic. No, we need to be an accurate demographic. No, it, if there's things that have happened that are wrong. And there will be some mistakes made, and I would, I've got no doubts about that. We need to investigate those things and make sure that they're properly put forward mm-hmm. um, to the Department of Conservation and pull them up on things that they've done wrong. And then you need to look at what you're actually doing on the hill and go, right, what did I shoot last year? Maybe you didn't shoot any, maybe you've never shot a bull. Go out there, have a good time, find a, the first good looking bull you see, shoot it. Make an estimation on go, what do you think this bull is? Is he young? Is he old? Is he big? Is he small? Shoot him. Go and have a look at him and go, I made the right decision. He was what I thought he was. Or you go, I was fucking way off the bat. And go, mm-hmm. why are we off the bat? You know, you have yeah, to yeah. look at. What could I do or you know, what or, can or, I do better? You know, why did you think he was small or why did you think he was big or whatever? And try and analyze your situation and move on with it. I think that's how you learn is you've got to actually analyze it. You can't just. Go and shoot and go, oh, that one's no good. And then you just carry on your day. You've mm-hmm. got to go, why was that not what I thought it was? Um, and I think we've got to realise the last few years, both from the Department of Conservation and Recreational Hunting Groups, we've been pushing for, we've got to do our part for tire control. We've got to start shooting nannies. And a lot of, a lot of us have been doing it. We've been shooting lots of nannies and especially long-range shooting stuff, it's easy to get in the habit of just kind of flinging lead at nannies, and mm-hmm. it's easy to do. You can shoot nannies all day long in the cliffs. We need to start kind of putting the brakes on that a little bit. If you're going to shoot some nannies and take the meat, that's fine, but if you're just shooting them for target practice, Doc's already done that for you. Mm-hmm. We, we don't need to shoot anymore because we're just hurting ourselves. If we just keep smashing them, it's going to be five, ten years down the track. You're going to be like, oh, well, there used to be a whole heap of tar in this valley. Where'd they all go? Mm. And it was because you shot them all. <laughs> yeah, then equally. So it's it's a hard one because we've been 
pushing that for the last few years. Yep. And now we kind of need to put the brakes on. But we need to, it needs like, um, how am I wording this? Like we need, I don't, I don't know if we can technically shoot that much less tar because we can't be seen every time they do an impact measure in terms of a cull. We can't be seen as a demographic to not do anything and let them get straight or progressively back to where they should be or where we where, where we, we, deem we, we deem they should be. So, you know what I mean? Like it's a little bit of a grey thing. We still need to, like you say, be be pretty sure on the areas where we are taking multiple tar out of and be sure that we are confident in why the selection of tar is happening for us as an individual. Yeah. One thing in... In the past, and, and even up until now, the Department of Conservation has made more or less no account or calculation for recreational harvest. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been calculated into the into the figures. And that's a big thing because we don't really know what that figure is. Um, so at the moment, there's an app which the Department of Conservation and the GAC together, I think, have been working on. Um, I had a brief look at it the other day. It looks really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's an app you download on your phone. It's got a map on it, and you can use your location on your phone, or you can move the map around and just set like a waypoint. Mm-hmm. And then you can choose what you shot. You know, I shot a bull or a juvenile or a kid, yeah. and how many animals you shot. And then you can add a photo as well of the animal. Hopefully that's going to be rolled out soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. There's no scheduled release date. I think there's a few minor twink, tweaks and this and that that's going to happen. But that there, once that's launched, needs to be something that everyone gets on board mm-hmm. because that's going to enable both us as recreational hunters and the Department of Conservation to get a handle on what's actually happening. Yep. Because up until now, it's more or less guesswork. Mm-hmm. We can try and, you know, just figure out how many hunters there are, which we don't even know, how many tar hunters there are, and then try and work out how many animals they're shooting, which is just a bit, in the sky. Yeah, a bit of guesswork. So how do we, I guess then, how, how do we get that sort of concept out to the tar hunters? Like how do we, you know what I mean? Because that, that, that technology is great. Yeah, yeah, and something like that, can help us all mm-hmm. um, and I think the big thing that we can do today with technology like looking at looking at the tar kills that have happened and if this app when it becomes active if we can hopefully get some of that data on a bigger scale made public like we don't want to me be able to look up and go where did you shoot that big yeah. ball and go oh like there it was in that spot yeah. And, yeah, yeah, but yeah. on a bigger scale and we can look at like big valleys and go right the orangutatas had a thrashing I'm going to go up in Macaulay, or you can, mm-hmm. you know, you can look at these areas on a bigger scale, and we can make better decisions about which areas mm-hmm. need a bit of clean up and areas that need to be, you know, hunted a bit more um, conservatively, I suppose you could call it. Uh, so I think that's something that New Zealand hunters as a whole, we can't. We can't be blamed for that. It's just mm. because we don't have the data, we don't have the information. It's, it's difficult to make decisions unless you've been into every valley in New Zealand yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To know what's been shot and where. Yeah, but I guess being able to visually see it, because I guess for me, pigs are probably what tar to you. And like I kind of know that a very heavy hand on a population kind of looks after itself for me because. Once the easy ones aren't there, guys leave it alone. And then the guys that still chip away at that country actually have pretty good success and then soon it finds itself in a natural balance again. And it's only when they boom again that the masses start going in there. So you know what I mean? Like yeah. being being able to simply see like, you know, just thinking of Joe Blogs is gonna go on a ton, they could look at this app and go, Like there's been sixty recreational tar shot, like it might not have the, yeah. the accuracies of what yeah. was or wasn't shot but sixty like, oh shit, well I'm just gonna not go there and I'll go you know, that might be enough. Yeah. I don't know. The problem the problem with tar and the problem we always have had with control is is access. Mm-hmm. Like I can drive you know, we can drive up the Hopkins 
here, we can be up there in an, in an hour, we can drive up. Macaulay, the godly, the Rangitata, you can access those areas really easily. If you start going over to the west coast, you either have to get in the machine or you want to go into the Jacobs. Mm-hmm. You want to go into the Callery. Mm-hmm. You can't fly in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's fucking hard to walk in there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's always going to be that problem. Um, and that's why we're always going to have sort of unequal hunting pressure and unequal management on different sides of the range. Yeah. Um, and that is an ongoing issue that there's no easy solution to. Um, the current control methods, like what the Department of Conservation has used recently, is ineffective in a lot of those areas on the West Coast. Because yep. the tar, there's a reason why, the tar, reason why yeah. the tar are living there, and it's because the helicopter hunting has, has been hammering them for so long that they've just given up on the high altitude stuff yep. and they're just living in the scrub so that's where we need to start looking at different solutions things like organized recreational hunts or opening up different ballot areas like the tar ballot expanding that into other valleys that don't have access um, or thinking up some other solution mm-hmm. um, there's a few other solutions. and is that all the kind of stuff from what you understand that the tar foundation is working on or towards just I guess variations of current models yeah on the long term that's stuff that they definitely like to have a say in um, but it's not it's not so easy to just go oh we'll just open up new areas to access Um, there's a lot of organisation and paperwork and bureaucracy that goes along with that Um, and there's a lot of people probably a bit sort of asking a few questions go what is the TAR Foundation doing Um, because a lot of us chuck cash at it um, yep. things happen slowly and the reality was the TAR Foundation was prepared to take the government to court over over this TAR control issue um, and that's a pretty major thing you know, you're talking about taking the government to court mm-hmm. you're going to take the government to court you're not just going to jump into it like, yeah. unless you have all your ducks lined up properly it's just going to cost you a shitload of money and you're going to walk out of there with, with nothing yeah. um, except the big bill. Um, so the TAR Foundation is very much keeping an eye on what the department's doing and trying to keep an eye on the control that's happened um, and trying to investigate a lot of these grey area rumours that are being saying, oh, I saw this happen and this yeah. happened. And so well, if you've seen something Prove it. that doesn't stack up, take some photos or get some GPS data and send it to the Tower Foundation and someone will go out there and actually have a look Um, because if those things... So this is all the... And I know I'm only talking to Joseph and I'm not talking to the Tower Foundation and this is only current version, but this is all the... And it's good that this is coming out in this podcast, but this this is the very content that the likes of the Tower Foundation and other foundations within New Zealand need to be sharing with the public. Yeah, to a point. It's a it's a hard one um, because the, the GAC, the NZDA, the TAR Foundation, or the GAC is a little bit of an exception, but the NZDA and the TAR Foundation, the Seeker Foundation, Wapi Foundation, the vast majority of these guys and women that are doing all this work are working two or three jobs. Yeah, and yeah. These people aren't these people aren't paid to do this work. Mm-hmm. Everyone is working other jobs and financially stressed. And people are trying to fit this in between their normal life and their mm. job, and most of them their other job, <laughs> and then they're trying to do this other work as well. So it's easy for people to point their finger, especially online. It's easy to point your finger. Yeah. But why aren't you doing this? And if you're one of those guys that are doing that, go outside and find a mirror and look at it and point the finger and go, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah. Um, because like recently, I went to the Tar Foundation had a meeting in Christchurch. And then I went to the SCI AGM after that and pretty confident I was the only one there under 30 and probably the only one there under 50. Yeah. <laughs> like close to, close to it. Yeah. You know, no offense to, to the no. older guys and the other guys, we need we need those old guys there because they've got the knowledge. Got and the there's the only ones doing it and, too. And, the only, and yeah. they're the only ones doing it. But there's really, and this is across all organisations, NZDA as well, there's a really distinct lack of people that are kind of mid-aged, like for hunting, mm-hmm. guys in their 20s to their 40s, 
who are the guys that are probably out on the hill running around seeing what's happening. And yes, we've all got families, and yes, we're all working jobs, and we've got kids, and we've got to do this, and we've got to do that. But if you've got something to say, or you've got something to contribute, or you want to see something change, put your hand up, or put yourself forward and get involved, mm-hmm. because... It's easy to sit back and go on Facebook and go, oh, you should have done this or you should have done that. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, get involved with it, make a change, make something happen. Um, it's not easy, especially all these organizations, you have to deal with the political side of it. And at the moment, you know, everything's intertwined with the government as well. And we can <laughs> see at the moment what's happening there. It's just a shit show. Um, so it's not going to be easy to make a change or see a change happen, everything takes a long time. But we're, we're the guys that have got the most to benefit from it. Mm. Things like changing herd dynamics or seeing benefit from management takes, like you were saying earlier, the, with like the Wobbity Foundation, you're talking 10 years yep. before you start to see real change on the hill. And that's going to be the same with the tar herd. And it's only when you see change on the hill that you see a positive change yep. in the population yep. as in us hunters. Yeah. Like when we, when we can all go out there and now see whoppity per numbers and X amount of good bulls are either filmed or shot in a given year, then we can't argue with the progress. No, and things do work, um, but it takes a long time and you've got to stick with it. You can't get to year five and go, oh, I'm not seeing the results I want. This is shit. I'll give up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to just stick at it. Yeah, when you get to year 10 and it's not working, then you can start asking some questions and scratch yeah. your head and go, where, yeah, did, but I guess, where did we fuck up? Like my kind of, I guess if you go back to the Field and Foundation, like at least they were willing to put a pig in the sand yeah. and say, hey, let's work from here. And yes, at year five, you might like to think there's some positive change. If there's not, then maybe it does need a slightly different direction. Yeah. But that's far better than a pie in the sky every single year. Yeah, <laughs> which is the other alternative, I guess. And so, I one hundred percent agree with you know contributing. But how can people contribute to the Tar Foundation at the moment? Um, at the moment, the best thing you can probably do is if you're out there hunting, is keep a good eye on what's actually happening on mm-hmm. the ground, um, because there's a lot of country to cover, and yeah. there's going to be a lot of guys out there that are, there'll be a lot of spring tar hunts. Yeah, yep, there's going to be a lot of guys out there that are spring tar hunting. There's guys out there now. Um, and if you can be the eyes and ears on the ground, um, keeping an eye on what's happening, that that is quite useful mm-hmm. um, because the Tar Foundation I know at the moment has got a handful of, oh, there was a bull shot here or there was bull shot here or there was this happened or that happened, and trying to investigate all those things logistically is quite difficult and yep. it, costs, it costs time and money to people that are, that are doing it as volunteers. Um, so if you see something, it's, everyone's got a cell phone in their pocket with a GPS in it mm. and a camera. So yep. know, what more can you ask for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. Um, and I think another thing to keep an eye on at the moment is there was quite a bit of discussion around non-toxic shot and it was agreed on that the Department of Conservation was going to go to non-toxic. Uh, which was a pretty big issue because we know that Kia are in decline mm-hmm. and we know that lead poisoning is an issue for Kia. There's no doubt about that. There's a fair bit of science yeah, that supports yeah. Kia have got high levels of lead and lead kills them and we know that Kia feed on tar carcasses and we know that Kia eat lead buckshot pellets um, and part way through the tar control, somewhere along the line, they had some issues with their non-toxic shot and they reverted back to buckshot is what lead, I uh, yeah, yeah, reverted back to lead buckshot which I've been told through an official information request um, how far along the tar control that happened, how many animals were shot with lead how many were shot with non-toxic we don't know um, how big of an issue that is we don't know so that's another thing to keep an eye on um, if you feel like Digging around and rummaging around, rummaging around and rotten carcasses, which is going to be my job <laughs> weekends <laughs> when I get out to the hills. Um, it's something to keep an eye on as well. Um, and if you find something that doesn't stack it up, you find something that this isn't 
fucking right. You can go onto Facebook and have a wee rant and moan about it, or you can get your information together properly and send it to the GAC and send it to the Tar Foundation and they'll add it to their... Compile a list. Yeah, of, compile a list of their stuff and then present it to DOT properly mm-hmm. um, and have a proper discussion about it because individuals having rants about it doesn't really achieve anything. No. Um, but if we can get a proper evidence-based sort of group of this is the things that have happened that are wrong um, and present them to the Department of Conservation, we can have have a bit of say there. Well, and I think, you know, if, like, like we've already touched on, it's history now. It's actually happened. Yeah. But it, it may hold them accountable to a higher standard if anything was to happen in the future. Yeah. And that's, and that's quite that's, important. That's yeah. all you can hope for, really. Yeah. You, you're not going to get a refund on the target shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't really want them at this point. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Oh, that's that's good, man. Like, I think that's... I think... I think... We kind of covered a pretty good topic there. I think... So from that, I think the listeners need to keep an eye out for when this app comes out and yep. use this app um, and and share the app amongst their friends. Like ensure that you know as many of these hunters are using it as possible. Yeah, just and to I, oh, I think if there's any Department of Conservation people listening, which is probably slim to none, but there'll be someone out oh, there. Oh, there's a few. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. Um, if this app goes ahead and gets launched which it should do and it should work, we need to have that for all our species, yeah. I think, because we get uh, a hunting permit and we go out there and shoot our animals and we tell the Department of Conservation that, oh, yeah, we shoot heaps of deer or we shoot heaps mm. of pigs or we shoot heaps of goats or whatever, but there's no there's no Record. figures yeah. on either side. The Department of Conservation can't say, oh, you didn't shoot this many or you only shot that many and we can't say we shot this many. Yeah. So having something like that that is easy to use on your phone across all species uh, would have huge benefits to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would allow hunters to really have a bit more sort of weight to our opinion mm-hmm. and say this is what we're worth. We always start speaking in fact. Yeah. We shot yeah. this many, we shot X amount of deer, X amount of goats, and we can have quite a lot of opinion on Mm. how things are actually happening because we've got a bit of weight behind us mm. um, instead of just plucking figures out of the air. Mm. Yeah. And for those that are lucky enough to get on the hill and, and see some animals, I guess just be accountable for your own actions, really. You know, like put some thinking into it. Is it is it the right ball for where your tar shooting background sits, you know? Um, you know, do, does the animal need to be taken today? Does it need to be taken by you? What have you? Just put some thinking into it. Yeah, I think that's yep. that's quite important. And 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 just keep, you know, like with all the there's a lot of hunting and firearm stuff going on in New Zealand at the moment. But I think equally we all need to just stay in tune with the the Facebook pages or the social media or the newsletters. Just stay in tune with them. I'm not saying give it all your time and energy but just stay in tune with them because there will be different parts and different bits of information that will be important at different times and at some time there will be a point where your involvement and commitment does matter so yeah and as i haven't been watching the firearms debate as much as i should have been the last couple of days but there's a lot yeah, there's a bit going on there. There's a, there's a yeah, lot happening, I've, and I sat down and gave it 20 minutes last night. I was like, "Okay, we'll yep. let's do them in segments." <laughs> yeah, for the people that are not up to date with the new legislation, you need to go and have a look at that because yeah. there's some stuff there that is a little bit frightening yeah. for some people, um, yeah. for a lot of people. So yeah. people need to be really aware of what's the potential changes on board um, because. There's some things there that are pretty important to everyone. It's not just the AR-15 guys. It's not yeah. the semi-auto shotgun guys. Yeah, it's not, not the long-range guys. It's, it's, it's firearms owners. Yeah, It's everyone. That's right. We might even do a whole podcast on that one day if I can get my head around it all. Yeah, well, the problem <laughs> is, is it's changing. It's yeah. not... It's an know. unwritten document. Yeah. Well, it's not a finished document. No, it's not a finished what happened yeah. yesterday and what's happening today. and yeah. you know, It's changing all the time, so... No, no, very good, Joseph. Thank you for the evening. Yep. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yep. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. 
There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.